Ask most people in Britain what they know about women getting the vote in 1918 and they'll say Mrs Pankhurst with a question mark. Oh, and something about women chaining themselves to railings uh, and big hats with wide brims and sashes and long Victorian dresses in purple, green and white. And possibly a few will mention hunger strikes. But what we've been discovering during our recent discussions is that by 1914, Mrs Pankhurst's Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, otherwise known as the Suffragettes, had achieved precisely nothing and had descended into complete disarray. Much more remarkable was what had been going on with the women in berry red and leaf green. These were the colours for the umbrella suffrage organisation, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS. Today, we talk about the alliance between Millicent Fawcett's NUWSS, the berry red and leaf green lot, and the Labour Party, and about how, by 1914, it had finally proved to the Liberal government that they had more to gain than to lose by giving votes to women. It was through the supremely skilful work of the NUWSS that women's votes would most definitely have been achieved in 1915. But then, war broke out. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. What we've witnessed over our previous discussions is just how much damage the suffragettes did to the cause of women's votes. The story that they had somehow single-handedly won the debate was fabricated in the 1920s and 30s. What we've seen is that in reality, the suffragettes had been a chaotic, money-making operation that had ruined the lives of many poorer women and made a series of political blunders which set the cause of women's votes seriously back. The NUWSS, Millicent Forces organisation, was a very different animal. It was set up in 1897 and had coordinated most suffrage societies, with of course the exception of the suffragettes, in a campaign of petitioning and pressure on MPs and ministers. If it hadn't, unlike the suffragettes, actively damaged the cause, nor had it in truth made a lot of progress, women's suffrage had never been, as we've been seeing, a cause that bothered more than a tiny number of activists. Even so, the NUWSS had been quietly growing. By 1909, it had 13,429 members. But then it began to take off. By 1914, it had over 600 societies and over 100,000 members. And by then, of course, the suffragettes were, what, 7,000? Fewer than 7,000. 39,500 of these NUWSS members were so-called friends, these were women who joined a new scheme for those who couldn't afford membership or weren't yet sufficiently committed. With all these members and friends, the NUWSS had become a seriously significant public lobby. Millicent Fawcett had been the president of the NUWSS since its inception in 1897. Now, these days, the members of the NUWSS associations are referred to as suffragists to differentiate them from the more militant Pankhurst suffragettes. But this distinction was much more blurred at the time. Whatever Mrs. 
Pankhurst had to say about it, many of her suffragettes also belonged to the suffragist NUWSS. In 1897, when she was first made president, Millicent Fawcett was already 50. Now, she's an ambiguous, divisive, fiercely intelligent character who's difficult to decipher. And perhaps that's why she's been rather neglected by historians. There's just one vast, hugely researched, but curiously one-dimensional and unsympathetic biography by David Rubenstein. It is so odd to write a huge biography of someone you actually dislike. The NUWSS's new members and friends, who by 1914 were still joining at over a thousand a month, were being recruited at open-air meetings and by laborious canvassing from house to house. In fact, the NUWSS organised cycle and caravan tours, which were ideas it had borrowed from the Labour Party. From 1913, it particularly targeted mining areas, which had been loudly militant in strikes the previous year. Mm-hmm. NUWSS speakers even appeared at the annual Durham Miners Gala, and this all turns out to be important later. Anyway, NUWSS revenues blossomed from £5,000 to over £45,000, outpacing even the slick money-making enterprises of the WSPU. By 1914, the Liberal government found that it could no longer ignore these constitutional suffragists. But it wasn't just because the NUWSS had now made themselves into a mass movement. It was because they, in strong contrast to the WSPU, understood the arcane and infuriating rules of British parliamentary politics. Until 1913, the NUWSS had always tried to work with the Liberal Party, but in that year it switched allegiance. It did a deal with Labour. Those slow, difficult campaigns in the mining districts had in fact been a clever tactic, since the miners were influential at Labour Party conferences. It was partly as a result of pressure from these mining unions that the Labour Party had now shifted away from its long-standing demand for complete adult suffrage. That meant votes for all men and all women, and it looked a very long way off in 1913. Instead, in 1913, the Labour Party agreed to campaign for women's votes on the same basis as men who could at that time vote. Now, that was a much more realistic objective. An NUWSS alliance with Labour made political sense. That was not only because Labour was the only party that had consistently campaigned for a wider franchise and now was openly backing women's votes, on the same basis as men, but mainly because the Liberals were now a minority government and depended on Labour votes to stay in power. In fact, younger members of the NUWSS, especially from the working-class northern districts, had been pushing for an alliance with Labour since 1909. Now, bringing the NUWSS and the Labour Party together in an alliance wasn't easy. In strong contrast to the suffragettes, the NUWSS was a democracy. Many of its middle-class members were very uncomfortable about switching alliance from the Liberals to these socialists, whom they didn't understand at all, but wildly imagined, therefore, to be some kind of cloven-footed communists. Still do. Still do. (laughs) But this was exactly the kind of delicate situation that called for, da-da, Millicent Fawcett. Fawcett had come into politics through her marriage to the blind Liberal professor and MP Henry Fawcett. He died in 1884, leaving his 37-year-old wife comfortably off. She could also earn a good living from writing history books and journalism. But she turned down the chance to be an academic in Cambridge and dedicated herself to good causes, especially among women. She'd taken an interest in proportional representation, trades unionism, women's education, child prostitution, 
divorce reform and the conditions of the working poor, amongst a whole lot more. Quite a contrast with Mrs Pankhurst, really. Although she had always been committed to the Liberal Party, Fawcett was in fact on its right wing. She'd backed the Tories' war in South Africa, the Boer War, and had been on the committee that investigated alleged abuses at the concentration camps the British had set up, the first concentration camps in the world. Did you actually go out there? Mm, After a tour of inspection, she'd reported that, well, on balance, the camps had taught the inmates hygiene and diet and were good for them. Certainly not a verdict that history has endorsed. Fawcett was also opposed to Irish Home Rule, which put her out of sympathy with many, even in the Liberal Party. Once again, history suggests that she was on the wrong side. And although Fawcett campaigned for women's votes, she was what's now called a, quote, sexual difference feminist. She believed that women should be equal but different, with a different role in society from men. Another point of view that nowadays looks rather old-fashioned. But Millicent Fawcett had one important gift. She excelled at negotiating behind the scenes. She was willing to suffer the hard yards, the dull days, the monotonous months that are the only way, it seems, to get anything done in British politics. And she inspired the rest of the NUWSS to join her on the same dull and narrow path, as she called it. They were in it for the duration. It's worth remembering that the NUWSS were in the business of voter reform long before the WSPU and would remain in it long after the WSPU had disbanded. It was the NUWSS that had actually pioneered the monster processions and rallies that the WSPU copied. You don't hear that very often. And for years, they'd also sent delegations to the Liberal government. And the Prime Minister, H.H. Asquith, had given them mealy-mouthed promises he had absolutely no intention of keeping, like most politicians. But in the end, Fawcett had lost patience with Asquith. While the suffragettes blundered about damaging the cause of votes for women, the NUWSS quietly grew. From 1906, it tried hard to work with the Liberal government that had been elected that year. But by 1911, its president, Millicent Fawcett, had had enough. Now, she increasingly threw her weight behind energetic young northerners, people like Catherine Marshall and Helena Swanick, who should be better known, and who'd been pressing for an alliance with the Labour Party. For two years, there were furious committee meetings. Remember, the NWS was a democracy. Many of the old Liberals in the NWSS threatened to resign. A few of them did. Some local societies refused to campaign against local Liberals at elections. But in 1912, all the Labour MPs had voted for women's votes. And in January 1913, it became official Labour Party policy. The case for an NWSS alliance with the Labour Party was now unanswerable. In February of that year, Fawcett came up with a clever deal. They would keep funds for electioneering for the Labour Party in a separate account, the so-called Election Fighting Fund, the EFF. Die-hard Liberals within the NUWSS wouldn't have to contribute if they didn't choose to. Another brilliant Millicent Fawcett compromise. Election Fighting Fund activists now campaigned for Labour candidates at by-elections. They didn't win any, but it didn't matter. They enabled Labour candidates to stand in seats where there'd only been Liberals and Tories before. It often split the vote and allowed a Tory to get elected. But, and this is very telling, unlike the days back in 1906 when the suffragette WSPU had had a similar tactic, now it made a big difference. 
The reason was, of course, that the Liberal government had lost the enormous majority it had won in 1906, and it was now in a minority. Every single seat it now forfeited was a disaster. Now every Liberal could see that Asquith's block-headed intransigence towards women's votes was costing his party very dearly. Now all this meant that Asquith faced a serious problem. In 1911 and 1912, he casually killed off the so-called conciliation bills which had aimed to deliver votes for women. He'd used the old government ruse of promising that, well, given time, the government would introduce its own reform bill. (laughs) Faced with an increasingly successful NUWSS campaign, however, Asquith was now actually compelled to keep his word. He would actually have to introduce a reform bill. But when it finally appeared in January 1913, it turned out that it wouldn't, after all, actually mention votes for women at all. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Uh, Asquith airily explained that MPs would, of course, be free to amend it to include women if they liked. <laughs> you can see what Asquith is thinking. He thinks he's let himself off the hook. He wouldn't have to lose face if it was passed and women were included, or as he hoped, it was defeated. This time, Asquith's cunning parliamentary ploy blew up in his face. Historians have found what followed mysterious, but it seems to us that there's a straightforward enough explanation. Asquith was simply outmanoeuvred by the Tories. Now, amendments to bills have to be allowed by the Speaker of the House of Commons. If an amendment is too drastic, however, it in effect creates a wholly new piece of legislation. And in that case, the Speaker is not able to allow it. So you've got to keep your amendments small. So, during the debate, the Tory leader, Andrew Bonalore... Of course, Christabel Pankhurst's friend. Yeah, he asked the Speaker whether he would allow an amendment to the bill to include votes for women. Might it, suggested Bonalore, be such a drastic change that it would become a whole new bill? Well, it was a grey area, and Bonalore's inquiry looked innocent enough not least because he was known to favour giving at least some rich women the vote. But Bonalaw also knew perfectly well that the Speaker, James Lowther, was a Tory and that he was a long-standing opponent of women's votes. So this was a very clever ploy to undermine Asquith and his government. Well, of course, Lowther solemnly replied that he would have to consider the case. The Times, perhaps tipped off by Tory friends in Parliament, gleefully reported that if the Speaker disallowed this amendment, it would make the government look ridiculous. After all, they promised a bill which could be amended when it seemed very likely that in fact it couldn't. As Bone Lord hinted, an amendment for female suffrage would change the bill so much it would break parliamentary rules. Well, that weekend, 25th to 26th of January 1913, Lather went off to a house party at the home of Lord Rothschild, one of the anti-suffrage campaigners leading financial backers. Suitably fortified on the Monday, he came to the Commons and announced, of course, that the amendment was impossible. (laughs) Now Asquith privately wrote to his girlfriend, Venetia Stanley, and I quote him, The Speaker's coup d'etat has bowled over the women for this session. A great relief. Pity we don't have Venetia's replies. But in public, the Prime Minister had to look pained and taken by surprise. His government had been made to look completely untrustworthy, making promises that turned out to be impossible to keep. Asquith's duplicity and the collapse of the government's franchise bill galvanised the situation. Within weeks, the NUWSS had ratified its new alliance with Labour. 
liberal opponents of the alliance within the NUWSS could hardly oppose this move now. Indeed, women began leaving the Liberal Party in large numbers. The Liberal Party's Women's Fellowship shrank by 13.5% and many of those who remained threatened to go on strike and refused to campaign in elections. Well, for the Tories, of course, the outcome couldn't have been better. They were rubbing their hands. Now they could introduce their own rather narrow measure of women's votes at some point in the future. The Liberals wouldn't get any of the credit, and nor, the Tories calculated, would the Liberals get the few rich women's votes that they intended to create. For the NEWSS, this amendment business, which looked at first like another setback, was in fact a great opportunity. Now, after all these years, suddenly all the parties were competing with each other to offer some measure of women's votes. And it was all thanks to the growing alliance between the NUWSS and the Labour Party. In the wake of the amendment debacle, the Pankhurst WSPU, which had again briefly suspended its campaign of terror while the bill was being debated, resumed with even greater ferocity. The middle of 1913 were the peak months for bombing and arson. Well, it was another miscalculation. The climate was now excellent for getting women's votes passed in Parliament. But it required delicate, political, behind-the-scenes negotiations, not blowing up trains and chapels. Thankfully, the NUWSS quickly moved to repair the political damage the suffragette violence was doing. In April 1913, plans were drawn up for a huge, national, ostentatiously peaceful pilgrimage. It would in fact consist of six coordinated mass marches converging on London from all corners of the country. They all set off on the 18th of June and marched for six weeks. It was an extraordinary piece of logistical organisation, an amazing piece of theatre. It was also a brilliant piece of politics. By the middle of 1913, the Constitutional Suffragists, or NUWSS, that's Millicent Fawcett's lot, were working with the Labour Party. This was putting very significant pressure on the minority Liberal government to make concessions on women's votes. Even the Tories, faced with the prospect that the Liberals might actually do something on the issue, now began proposing to offer at least a few wealthy women the vote so that they could take the credit. Well, Mrs Pankhurst's suffragettes, of course, threatened to scupper this whole emerging consensus by launching their worst tide of terrorism yet. The NUWSS, however, skillfully undid at least some of the harm by organising a massive six-week peaceful pilgrimage to London, converging from six points around the country. The marches were occasionally met with violence. At Tame, for example, near Oxford, one of their caravans was set on fire by drunken men. It nearly killed the three women asleep inside. They couldn't get out. If a doctor hadn't called the police, they could have been burnt alive. Even so, the police didn't arrest the arsonists. They simply told them to move on and leave the ladies alone. Unite you suffragettes, there would be murderers called out beerily as they shuffled away. Tells you all you need to know. The suffragettes had played the violent card, including arson, and in many minds, their campaign seemed to justify a violent response. Except, of course, the women in the caravan were constitutional, peaceful suffragists. Most of the public, however, understood that the NEWSS march was a peaceful protest, not only against women's exclusion from the franchise, but also against the use of violence. There was widespread support, especially noticeably in the north and in the mining towns, 
wherever in fact the NEWSS Electoral Fighting Fund had been working with Labour. The pilgrimage culminated in a rally at Hyde Park and delegations were sent to meet Asquith, Lloyd George and some of the ministers. The Asquith government's response to the pilgrimage, of course, was, as usual, vague and evasive. But now it didn't matter. What the NUWSS pilgrimage of 1913 shrewdly achieved, and we've never heard about, was to give the minority Liberal government the justification they needed to go for women's votes. Conceding votes for women wouldn't signify giving in to the out-of-control arsonists of the Pankhurst WSBU. Nor would it have to look like party political play in favour of Labour Party socialism, God forbid, or a move to enfranchise only the Tory rich. Votes for women now looked like a progressive, popular step supported by law-abiding citizens, men and women, from all sections of society and from every region of the country. Well, it was the holy grail of the political game, something that suffragette violence had never come close to achieving. It showed, finally, that the government had more to gain than to lose by giving women the vote. Da-da! You'll cut out that da-da. Probably. By 1914, long-established suffrage figures like the socialist Henry Brailsford, who'd previously been associated with the suffragettes, were working openly with the NUWSS. So were other suffrage organisations, like the hitherto rather militant but non-violent Women's Freedom League and the Men's League for Women's Suffrage. With, of course, the glaring exception of the WSPU, the suffragettes, the women's franchise movement had at last found solidarity, and it had all been built around the NUWSS alliance with the Labour Party. Now, under British constitutional rules, there would have to be an election in November 1915 at the latest. There was always the possibility that if the Labour Party made significant gains at the Liberals' expense, and that looked reasonably likely, the Tories would emerge as the new government. So, of course, behind the scenes, in 1914, Millicent Fawcett and the NUWSS began quietly negotiating with the Tory leadership as well. There had been a small Tory Association for Women's Suffrage founded in 1908, Its aim had been slowly to persuade the Tory leaders to give propertied women the vote. It argued that women should have the vote in return for all they did to preserve society. Now they're talking tradition, resistance to change, protecting property, asserting empire and allegiance to crown constitution and the established religion. You get the drift. Uh, The words wrong side and history come to mind. Some prominent Tories, Balfour, Bona Law, Lord Robert Cecil and others, had long believed the votes for rich women would gain them more seats. But by the middle of 1914, the number of Tory MPs and members of the House of Lords who were in favour of this kind of women's suffrage was growing. So in May 1914, the NUWSS's Catherine Marshall drew up what she labelled as, quote, an absolutely confidential memo for the movement's leadership. Its subject was... Quotes, the form in which women's enfranchisement would be most acceptable as conservative policy. So if there was a Tory government, the NUWSS would be in a position to do a deal. In the summer of 1914, there was a mood of euphoria in Millicent Fawcett's NUWSS. Everybody now agreed that votes for women would be a major issue at the 1915 election. The Labour Party would stand on a platform for women's votes. The Tories were likely to propose their own measure. Even Asquith's Liberals would have no choice but to follow and come up with their own proposal. There were even rumours that Lloyd George and other ministers would use women's votes as a device to get rid of Asquith. 
whom they'd long mistrusted. They would refuse to serve in a government unless it was committed to enfranchising women. Catherine Marshall, the NUWSS figure who'd originally, remember, pushed for the alliance with Labour and who'd recently drawn up the secret memo about how to work with the Tories, was now also quietly negotiating with Asquith. She tried to persuade the old chauvinist that he had no alternative now but to put forward a measure of his own and looked like he believed in it. In June 1914, Asquith even met Sylvia Pankhurst, who by now had been thrown out of the WSPU for her socialist views and was working with poorer women in London's East End. He privately conceded that he would now have to back women's suffrage. NUWSS tactics from 1913 were the exact opposite of the suffragettes. By avoiding violence and by brilliantly playing the political game, starting by an alliance with Labour, the NUWSS achieved an historic breakthrough. Many historians believe that British women would have won the vote within months. But then, of course, war broke out. As we see in our podcast series on why Britain went to war in August 1914, there really was nothing inevitable about the murderous horror of the trenches. When you get to look at it closely, Britain did not need to enter the war. In fact, had she stayed out, there might very well have been no war at all. Britain certainly didn't need to send an army to Flanders. The declaration of war on the 4th of August, actually there never was a declaration, the disgraceful slide into war on the 4th of August, was privately engineered by Asquith and a tiny minority in the cabinet, the army, the foreign office and the right-wing press. It took most people by surprise, but of course it changed everything. As most people know, the Pankhurst suffragette WSPU immediately called off its campaign of violence in return for an amnesty for its prisoners. But like everything else to do with the Pankhursts, it's not what it seems. In the first place, they had no alternative. You can't wage a terrorist campaign during a war without being condemned as traitors. Secondly, the offer of a truce in fact came from the government and not from them. And third, most suffragettes were extremely relieved. The war had saved the WSPU from fizzling out in an ignominious dead end. A member of the WSPU, Elsie Bowerman, tells us how it was. She wrote, quotes, It was almost with a sense of relief that we heard of the declaration of war. We knew that our militancy, which had reached an acute stage, could cease. Well, Elsie Bowerman knew all about relief. In 1912, she survived the sinking of the Titanic. The truth was, as historian Martin Pugh has argued, the WSPU, the suffragettes, had painted themselves into a hopeless corner by 1914. The violence was out of control and was manifestly harming its cause. Its numbers were dropping like a stone. But Christabel and Emmeline Pankhurst would not consider climbing down. The war let them off the hook. The usual story goes that the WSPU then threw itself into a campaign to encourage men to volunteer for the forces. They sent white feathers of cowardice to those who didn't. Actually, of course, it wasn't really like that. The WSPU, in fact, split badly on this issue. Some were for the war, but many were against it. Many members also protested loudly about the £46,000 that, rather extraordinarily, the organisation had amassed in its accounts by the time war broke out. Well, that's about £5.3 in today's money. 
now that the WSPU had suspended operations, just exactly where was that money? We could make a couple of guesses. When war broke out, Chris Spilpankas at first fled from France to the United States, and then, in March 1915, ignoring the demands of members that she return to Britain and contribute to the war effort, she went back to France. She claimed that had she set foot in England, she would have been arrested for criminal conspiracy and suffragette violence. Of course, that was complete nonsense. Under the government's amnesty, there was no chance at all she'd be arrested. But Christabel settled once more in France, at a safe distance from the front, of course. A short train ride from Paris in the fashionable and extremely expensive Normandy seaside resort of Deauville. Her mother, meanwhile, found a new money-making cause. She tried to set up a home for babies left orphaned or destitute by the war. Good Good idea. Good cause. But apparently failing to convince anyone to subscribe in Britain, she found, somehow, the resources from somewhere for an expensive fundraising tour of the United States. But as we've seen in an earlier discussion, the Americans had become tired and rather cynical of Mrs Pankhurst's persistent demands for money. So in the end, raising very little, she adopted just four young girls herself and then proceeded to buy a smart house in expensive Kensington and employ a nurse to look after them. The £46,000 of WSBU funds was never accounted for. The usual story then goes that the WSPU patriotically came to the nation's rescue in 1915 by organising the employment of women in munitions factories and that this was a major reason women would win the vote in 1918. And of course, like everything else to do with Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst, this too is not at all what it appears. Christabel Pankhurst had spent the later part of 1914 and the earlier part of 1915 loudly and rather unpatriotically criticising the government's conduct of the war. She dismissed the war in the trenches as a waste of time. Instead, what she wanted was an attack on Austria through the Balkans. Uh, It was, you might say, an entirely fanciful idea. But her repeated criticism of the government became so close to treason that in 1916 the police raided the WSPU's offices and printers started to refuse to print the WSPU magazine, now renamed Britannia. Christabel protested that it was all a conspiracy and that certain well-placed individuals like Liberal Minister Richard Haldane, who'd gone to a German university, or Foreign Office man Air Crow, who was half German, were secretly working to make sure that Britain didn't win the war. Which, <laughs> if, you, if you listen to our series on the coming of the First World War, you realise it's laughable since both Richard Haldane and Air Crow had been among the men most responsible for taking us into the war in the first place. But there we go. We could ignore, we should ignore Christabel's rants as an irrelevance. But the thing is that they chimed all too precisely with a campaign being waged by the right-wing press and the Tory party to bring Asquith's Liberal government down. Now, we know, after all, that Christabel had been keeping up a correspondence with the Tory leader, Andrew Bernalaw, for years and years. Stay with us on this. Well... In May 1915, faced with all this criticism, the Liberal Prime Minister Asquith tried to quell the noise by inviting the Tories into a coalition. The general election that had been scheduled for that year was of course postponed in the hope that the war would end soon. But sensing Asquith on the run, the right-wing press closed in for the kill.
1915, the Prime Minister H.H. Asquith was on the ropes. The war was not going well, and the right-wing press launched wave after wave of attacks on him. Inviting the Tories into a coalition in May 1915 only stirred the press up even more. Now they smelled blood. Now, if you're wondering what this has to do with women's votes, stay with us, and it's a good story. The Times military correspondent was Charles Accord Reppington, a man about whom we hear a great deal more in our series on why Britain went to war in 1914. Now, he was getting information from Sir John French, the general in command of the British Army on the Western Front. French was telling him that so few shells were being manufactured that his big guns could only fire four a day. And the thing was, it was true. Asquith's government had made absolutely no preparations for a major conflict. Now Reppington wrote a major expose for the Times. A week later, the story ran again, this time in the Daily Mail, another paper owned by the right-wing Lord Northcliffe. This story about the lack of shells was a scandal and a serious challenge to the government. The Minister for Munitions in the new coalition government was David Lloyd George. He disliked Asquith as much as the Tories did. And he saw the so-called munitions crisis as a perfect opportunity to get rid of Asquith and put himself in charge. But of course, first he had to solve the shortage of shells. It was a tricky problem. Shell production was dangerous work and Lloyd George could only increase it dramatically by negotiation with the trades unions. The union men, however, would never accept longer hours or cuts to wages or shortcuts on health and safety. So dramatically increasing production with trades union men would therefore be expensive. But using women would get round all of these problems. It was a brilliant idea. Whatever Lloyd George publicly promised, women could be thrown quickly into dangerous jobs and be paid much less than the men. And once the war was over, and this is the best bit, the jobs would conveniently disappear. So the trades union men need to have no fear of being put out of work or having their wage packets undercut by these new female employees. So the trades unions, to their lasting shame, agreed. Lloyd George's... They agreed? Yeah, they did. That, that, that's really bad. This is terrible. Now, Lloyd, jo- Lloyd George's problem now was how to persuade working women to take up these dangerous, poorly paid dead-end jobs. The obvious thing to do was to turn to the women's organisations. Now, by far, the largest women's organisation was the NUWSS. The suffragists. The suffragists. It was patriotic, enormous and well-run. Good. Despite deep divisions between those who opposed and those who supported the war, it had thrown itself into organising for the war effort. Many took up nursing, often in dangerous conditions close to the front line. Suffragists set up hospitals for refugees in Britain, Egypt, Eastern Europe. The really important Scottish women's hospital movement set up units in Serbia, Malta, Russia and many other places. They defied the obstruction of the British government to whom they'd offered the mobile hospitals in the first place. Women doctors in the field did pioneering work with x-rays. In Serbia, suffragists found themselves digging graves of the war dead. They were joined, in fact, by many former suffragettes. One of them, in fact, was Lillian Lenton, who, as we discovered in our last discussion, was a notorious arsonist, setting fire to the Orchid House in Kew and many private houses. Elsie Bowman, the suffragette who'd survived the Titanic, worked in suffragist hospitals in Romania, found herself in St. Petersburg in 1917 when the first Russian Revolution of that year broke out. 
So, leaving Mrs Pankhurst and her remaining associates to get on with the entirely risk-free business of distributing white feathers to conscientious objectors, these and many other suffragettes signed up to the suffragists' impressive, challenging war work. Back in Britain, suffragists worked around bumbling local officialdom to relieve food shortages and unemployment. They campaigned for women to do all the jobs men were leaving behind as they joined up. Women started to appear as bus drivers, research scientists, surgeons. Eventually, they'd be test pilots, delivering planes to the new Royal Flying Corps. It was all extremely valuable, not only for Britain's war effort, but for the emancipation of women. Well, this, of course, was what militant forces and others in the NUWSS had spent their lifetimes campaigning for. Women's right to work with good pay and conditions. The NUWSS also now had a pact with the Labour Party, which had also long campaigned for workers to be treated well. So the NUWSS was never going to collaborate with Lloyd George's cynical plan to exploit women in dangerous munitions factories, in paying conditions the trades unions would not have tolerated for their men. So someone, it's in fact quietly said that it was the King, George V, suggested that Lloyd George therefore try what was left of the Pankhurst WSPU. After all, they'd given up their violence and they were in sympathy with the right-wing campaign against Asquith and would work with Lloyd George to do anything to show up Asquith's incompetence. Best of all, Emmeline Pankhurst was at that very moment touring the country speaking out against trades unions. Bingo! Lloyd George gave Emmeline Pankhurst £2,000, a little over 200000 in today's money, to organise a women's Right to Work March. It was, as we know, a great success. It would eventually achieve Lloyd George's principal objective, which was to winkle Asquith out and replace him as Prime Minister. But more immediately, it started a scheme that placed over 700,000 women in dangerous munitions factories. Now, to be fair to Mrs Pankhurst, that was about 44% of the new jobs women acquired temporarily during the war. Mrs P also called for the so-called munitionettes to get the same pay and conditions as the men. But they never did, and by the time they were at work, she'd lost interest in them. For many years now, after all, she'd been campaigning for women like these not to have the vote, but for it to be restricted to the rich. And she'd been campaigning against the trade unions that tried to stand up for good wages and conditions. When her own daughter, Sylvia, had started trying to improve conditions for working women like this in the East End of London, Mrs Pankhurst had thrown her out of the suffragettes. And in truth, the munitionettes, as they were called, had a terrible time. Their skin turned yellow, was from the phosphorus in the explosive. Their teeth fell out. The pay was poor, and at the end of the war, the jobs immediately vanished. Most were young, and when votes for women were at last agreed in 1918, they discovered, to their horror, that there was a 30-year age threshold and that they didn't count. By then, Emmeline Pankhurst, as we saw in our first discussion in this series, wasn't even campaigning for women's votes anymore. It wasn't until long after the war that ex-suffragettes created the myth that the WSBU munitions campaign was a major reason that women had won the vote. As we've seen, women worked as paid employees in an enormous range of jobs during the First World War and, more important, volunteered in far more, often at huge sacrifice and danger to themselves. The NUWSS and its affiliated societies were involved in vastly more of this than the WSBU ever was. 
Mrs. Pankhurst's munitions factories were only a part of it, and in many ways a disgraceful, exploitative part that set back the wider cause of women's emancipation. It was finally in 1916-18 that the women's vote was won. As we saw in our first discussion in this series, the complicated parliamentary manoeuvring that finally broke through was brilliantly pushed along and coordinated by Millicent Fawcett and the NUWSS, building on the successes of 1913-14. It's a great story, which historian Sandra Holton researched nearly 40 years ago and deserves to be much more widely known. Mrs Pankhurst, we discovered, contributed nothing. In the middle of it all, in fact, in 1917, she disbanded the suffragettes altogether and seems to have pocketed whatever remained of their finances. And there you have the secret history of the suffragettes. It certainly surprised us. The suffragettes don't deserve the credit for getting some women the vote in 1918. It's chiefly the NUWSS we should credit. It's why their president, Millicent Fawcett's statue, is in Parliament Square, and she's the only woman there. Just how and why we've all got the story so wrong for so long is a mystery. And one we'll finally nail in a standalone discussion on what happened in the 10 years between 1918 and 1928, when all women in Britain were finally given the vote. And that's a story in which Mrs Pankhurst turns out to have played a truly shocking part. (sighs) Try and catch this podcast if you can. It's called After 1918, The Secrets Are Out. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at historycafepod.org.